Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Simon Curtis. Simon is the Managing Director and Owner of Cloud Electronics, the UK leader in amplification, mixer amplifiers and zone routing audio tools in the realm of commercial and domestic installations. Simon, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. It's great to be here. It's a real pleasure having you um, on the air with us as well, Simon. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish your take on the topic of leadership as a whole. And I think it is fair to say, isn't it, that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment with the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and business leaders across the UK and the wider world having to feel their way through what ultimately is an unprecedented crisis. Of course, we'll discuss your response to that in a little bit more detail later. But if we begin by just looking at the word leader, just in isolation for a second. I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you personally and how it resonates. Yes, I think uh, you're absolutely right. These uh, extraordinary times, um, you're asked and challenged with difficult decisions and choices um, and leadership uh, really does get tested. at, at these times, but for me, the uh, traditional leadership approach that I've always taken is to try and empower um, as many of my senior staff and management team to, you know, run uh, run the business on a day to day basis and make decisions and choices in in the right way. That's not quite the same now because the management team isn't, frankly, you know, at one's disposal. So you you right back on the tool, so to speak. And uh, therefore, those uh, leadership challenges are every single aspect of the business. And But you're still, assigning, you're still applying the same principle uh, of business choice, making the right commercial decisions, what's in the best interests of the, of the enterprise, what's in the best interests of your customers and uh, your, your employees. So leadership's about getting those decisions right and making choices always you end up and i think every uh, uh, business commercial business leader would identify with you you come across left right decisions all the time there, there's rarely a straightforward choice you've got a left or right decision to make and you've got to make that now you you either get it right or you get it wrong and that, that's fundamentally the leadership aspect it's a left or right choice um almost constantly you're challenged with that choice and that's how i see the leadership decision is is making those choices Mm, leadership is about making decisions i think that's absolutely right uh, simon and if we think about your leadership style for a moment from a people management perspective how would you describe that i i I try i try desperately to employ the best staff i can and have the best managers I can uh, always employ people better than you are it's, it's quite simple and don't be intimidated by that uh, I like to be surrounded by you know a, a good honest trusted people who make really you know really good choices and let them do it let them let them run the business and, and don't don't interfere uh, 
So I try to step back and let middle management run the business on a day-to-day basis. That's, uh, so I guess they call it hands-off, but it, it, mm. it is, uh, and I find that works particularly for, for this enterprise. It's a, you know, it's a, a small manufacturing business in a niche sector of the world. It doesn't need a lot of lever pulling. It, it doesn't. It just needs you know good middle management to run the business on a on a day to day basis. So yes, try to be hands off. Try to empower uh, uh, them to to make the decisions and choices, and it seems to work really well. I think it's incredibly important to remember that as leaders, we're not alone in our endeavours, are we? You can delegate and you have to get into the habit of being able to let go of some responsibility, particularly if you're just sort of starting out in business and you're getting to that point where businesses are growing and you're beginning to look at middle management being um, something to implement for the future. And then empowering people to be independent, take their own form of leadership on and make their own mistakes, learn from them. That's incredibly important, not just in the development of a business, but also in their development people as well yeah definitely definitely for their own development and i think that's uh, any good uh, head of business uh, head of their company their enterprise really needs uh, excellent uh, you know middle uh, middle management they can be in any shape or size but empower them and and get them enthused about making uh, making good choices and good decisions and feel that they're part of, you know, feel that they are ownership in their business as it stands. And, and people thrive on that. They really do. And I think good and effective leadership is really going to be paying dividends at the moment, isn't it, with the COVID-19 situation, and which is demanded of a lot of people for them to go above and beyond to just keep things ticking over in the running of businesses across the UK and the wider world. Um, I'm interested to understand, Simon, how you found it as a business adapting to the challenges brought about by the pandemic, because I can imagine it's posed one or two issues for the likes of yourselves as well, even working within the technology industry. Oh gosh, yes. Well, we, we're in a particularly uh, uh, our sector and sweet spot is hospitality, retail, mm. entertainment, health, fitness. I mean, the the category, the sectors that have been uh, uh, seriously damaged and affected by by a pandemic. Um, and you know, literally on the twenty third of March, our business just stopped dead. There was no orders, no sales, nothing. Um, because we were supplying directly, uh, supplying to you know hospitality retail, and uh, so we we got hit instantly uh, and very severely. Um, and only now are we starting to see little uptick in demand, um, uh, mainly international exports. I'm pleased to say, um, but it's yeah we got hit very hard. So we're in a we're in a, a, a niche end of technology. In, in those uh, retail and hospitality sectors. And there's been a great deal of debate within those industries as well as to how clear government guidelines have been, not just through the pandemic to date, but also for the future as things begin to reopen and businesses have to become COVID secure to begin operating them um, as normal. Um, in your case, how do you feel the guidelines have been in terms of clarity and transparency. Are you comfortable that you have known exactly what's been expected of you and what's going to be continually expected of you? Or um, and uh, does that also go for the industries that you work with as well? Yeah, I, I think so. I, 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 I it's a, it's a hugely difficult scenario for for government. Uh, you know, no, nobody would ever want this 
situation, but to to try and protect the health and well-being of your nation is obviously any government's priority. Um, and trying to, um, let's say, um, 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 encourage uh, protection and uh, uh, safety aspects, but at the same time, not completely crush businesses and enterprises uh, is, a, is a real tricky balancing act that uh, government's having to deal with. But in terms of the communication, I don't have a particular problem with with whether you know government should be dictating every step you take in every building you walk through. Um, it, it, that's just impossible to achieve. So no, I, I'm I'm reasonably comfortable with what the you know the guidelines with the recommendations um, and a little bit of flexibility to interpret those guidelines. I think is sensible. Otherwise, we we are just finished. You finished completely if we do not have some way of moving forward as as small little enterprises that can continue to employ people. And there's been a great deal of adaptability and flexibility required of business throughout this uh, pandemic, um, hasn't there? And um, in mm. fairness, I think from what's been seen in the uh, the public eye, business has tended to uh, to cope quite well, even though it has been a quite difficult time uh, financially and otherwise. Um, but do you think that the experience of having to essentially adapt in this way and that experience of crisis management for this generation of business leaders is going to yield some positives going forward in that it will breed some resilience in those businesses that do make it through and it's been a real character building exercise for those employees as well yes uh, i think that's a, a, an understatement i think we're now we're now at the back of this point around sort of mid-june where we're moving away from a, a health crisis to now moving in towards a a financial crisis uh, and the recession unfortunately is there in front of us there is no escaping it um, and unfortunately there are there are businesses that now get a uh, I'd say reluctantly they have a they have an opportunity to restructure and reassess their their enterprise and, and and their operations their structures their processes and procedures and there are going to be casualties. Unfortunately, it is inevitable. There is no, there is no alternative. Uh, the furloughing program has just been a, a, a monumental tax lift to support businesses. But you know, a lot of businesses will just never be the same again. Their operations, their their their, their worlds will just not, never be the same following this because of the. The damage, unfortunately, that's been inflicted. It's the suddenness of it that has caused the, at least with recession, you kind of have a, a, a sort of approach to it. But with this, there was no real approach. It was literally overnight stop. And that's really difficult to, to, uh, to manage and facilitate as a, a, as a small enterprise. So you, there's going to be some, some the, the real work is about to start. Let's put it that way. I think that's exactly right, Simon. And if we do think about the future and what that might bring now before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, do you give me an idea of what you envision for yourself and for Cloud Electronics as a business and what you hope to achieve as we move through into the next stage with the pandemic and into this new normal and try to address mm. the challenges that that's going to bring? Well, um, uh, there's, there's a... There's a fundamental restructuring and resizing of, of the business that's just inevitable, and uh, uh, that will force us to be more efficient, 
to be leaner again, uh, to, to look at cost in a, through a different uh, focus, uh, uh, look at productivity and look at the efficiencies of, of the business because you're forced to do so. You, 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 you don't do those things in the, in the, in the let's say busier or more successful times because you haven't got the time. Uh, you don't have the uh, appetite, let's put it that way. Whereas now it's forced upon you because it's it's inevitable, and you respond in the in, in the right way. You you, you just you micro manage cost at an in, at a far more detailed level, um, and focus on marketing communication. How that changes. There's going to be less travel. There's going to be less direct engagement with customers. So you're going to there's going to be much more remote tutorial. So the whole marketing approach will change too. Um, and there will be other casualties along the way. So some of my competitors are going to suffer. Some of my customers are going to suffer. So we, you know, it's, it's just a different landscape that you're looking at going forward, and it's, it's trying to cut your business shape to match how you see the outlook and the vision over the next 12 to 24 months, I fear. It's going to be certainly a very interesting and uncertain time, isn't it, as we sort of move into, as you say, the economic crisis and just see what sort of shape the recovery is eventually going to take. And it's all well and good speculating about that, Simon, but I think it would actually be much more informative if we could have you back on the uh, the programme in a few months' time, having discussed these issues briefly today, to talk about what exactly has changed in the time between and what more work needs to be done to get us back on the uh, the right track. Great. Lovely. I'd love to. I think that would be uh, fantastic, not just for myself, uh, but from a listener's perspective. It's a shame that we don't have more time today, or we could, of course, wax lyrical about it long into the afternoon, I'm sure. Um, but it's been a real pleasure, Simon, really having you on the uh, the programme uh, for certain. I've really, really enjoyed um, our discussion. And most importantly, until we do touch base again in the future, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on, because even though we are moving into what is the next stage of this pandemic situation, we're certainly not out of the woods with it yet, and there's plenty of time for things to regress. You're right. Stay safe. Be good. That was Simon Curtis speaking, the Managing Director and Owner of Cloud Electronics. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Since his retirement, Sir Andrew has become the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. But during his playing days, he joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia. He also became the England skipper during his tenure with the second highest number of test victories an England captain has ever chalked up in history. Quite impressive. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished speaking with Sir Andrew. That is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Riscothic who gave me that nickname. Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. 
Uh, but you know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Uh, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But 
I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd, broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of 
well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that would that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was 
sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move as times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die... Um, we learned a lot in that process and, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died, 
in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it if you if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your Mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's a, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say... But whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much. Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing re- wearing red so what w- what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um absolutely. no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket. 
um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the hundred, not without its critics. There, I should, and I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience. Exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask why do we need the hundred as well? Uh, well, so the hundred is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.